You've got mail. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Nordy Pod. I'm Pete Nordstrom, president of Nordstrom, and your host for this podcast. Join me as I take you on an honest, authentic journey through our company and introduce you to many of the fascinating people in my life, one episode at a time. In this episode, we're opening up a time capsule from the year 1998. Placed in the wall near our front entrance, it commemorates the grand reopening of the new flagship store in downtown Seattle. Okay, Nordstrom employees, if you were here 25 years ago when we put this in the wall, raise your hand. Look how many there are. Thank you. Let's go ahead, uh, Jimmy, let's pop out some screws here and we will do the grand reveal. Nineteen ninety-eight also happened to hold another huge milestone moment for Nordstrom, the creation of Nordstrom.com. Listen as we dive into the origins of our digital storefront with one of the founding leaders of Nordstrom.com, Bob Schwartz. Back then, and you know, I'll put on my old back then, when you placed that order, just the idea that I could go on my computer, click a button, put in a credit card, and place an order and get something, that was magical. We'll also explore the continued evolution of this digital landscape and where Nordstrom.com stands today with President of Digital and Customer Experience at Nordstrom, Miguel Almeida. If you think about where we're taking digital, it's about continuing to bring customers to our store events. It's about helping them connect with their favorite salesperson or stylist in store. It's about amplification of human experiences. But before we get into all that, I'd like to introduce you to one of our brand partners who just happened to be visiting us recently from Germany. His name is Carl Seibel of Joseph Seibel Shoes. So all kinds of different brand partners come through here all the time, meeting with our buyers, our merchandising teams, and sometimes meeting with me. And it feels like a good opportunity that when people come through that are interesting, that we get a chance to talk around the Nordy Pod. So today we've got Carl Seibel, who, now Carl, what generation are you of this I'm family? I'm fourth generation. Fourth, I'm fourth generation of the yeah. Nordstrom family too. Okay, so fourth generation member of this family that founded the Joseph Seibel Shoe Company out of Germany. And so, Carl, thanks so much for being on the Nordy Pod. Thank you for having me here. So maybe you can start just by talking a little bit about the history of, of your guys' company. Well, the company Joseph Seibel was um, founded by my great-grandfather in um, 1886 in the very little town of Hauenstein, this is the southwest part of Germany. When I joined the company, I was, I'm now 40 years with, a, with the company Joseph Seibel. I'm running the company now 40 years, I'm 65. So with 25 and one day, I joined the, the Joseph Seibel company. My father was running that. 
he was Joseph Seibel, my grandfather was Joseph Seibel, and the founder was Carl, like of my name. Oh, okay. So it's, um, you're born in a shoebox, as you know, and then you have to continue that business. Uh, there was no, was no doubt for me. And uh, yeah, then I developed the company over the, over the last three, four decades into an international company. We have been only selling shoes at that time when I joined uh, in Germany, a small company, 200,000 pairs we made, not very big. Nowadays, we're doing a couple million pairs of shoes. So tell me about when you were coming along and decided to be in the family business. Was that something you felt you were obligated to do? Or how did you end up making the decision, okay, this is what I want to do. I want to be in the family shoe business here like my dad and my grandfather. Yeah, I feel that I was obligated. I mean, my, when I um, finished my school, I had no idea what to do. And so my father told me, okay, you come to me, go with me around, see what we what I'm doing. I was living, my, my, my parents' house where I live today was directly connected to the factory at the time. So I was every day in that factory from as a kid. Did you have a job as a young person, like working in the factory, yeah, yeah, sweeping course. the floors um, or whatever heck when you, you did? When you, when you, I mean, you, you know, you want a, a, a little motorbike or something with, with 15, 16, I asked my father, say, hey, you could buy me something. You can go to the factory and work in your vacation. See, now that sounds super familiar. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, my dad said, well, great, you want to buy stuff? We'll give you an opportunity to earn money and come down here and I would sweep floors and stuff like that. That was the first time and the last time in my life I asked him for money. Oh, <laughs> really? But I was feeling that my dad was waiting for me even if i have four brothers and a sister i was the one um yeah and i was so for me it was clear from the very beginning do your brothers and sisters work in the business my youngest brother is uh, my head designer but uh, nobody else is uh, involved yeah so what was the catalyst that made you feel like okay let's see if we can now start selling shoes in the united states i mean you remember that moment yeah i remember very well i mean i was two years in the more or less one and a half year in the in the company and a good friend of mine was studying in eugene oregon and he said we should sell some shoes in us let's go there and we went to the new york shoe fair in february um, 85 that was our first attempt to the to the market had no idea about the shoes over here had no idea about the brand product whatever we just so went no there. one here knew anything about it absolutely nothing did anyone there. visit your your booth or your showroom yeah, at the we shoe had a, show <laughs> <laughs> we had a couple <laughs> customers but no no really sales and i remember i was sitting in the airplane back to frankfurt and i was saying how can i explain to my father that we had not really a success over there, but we made it, you know. I sent him over again and we, we started on the West Coast here. We started in little shows in San Francisco and Seattle up here. This is where it started. So how would you describe your guys' point of view and what it is that you do that creates its own niche in the shoe marketplace? We are leather company, number one. I mean, our shoes are leather. We are in comparison um, to many, many good uh, shoes out there today, which are with a knitted upper, with a synthetic uh, materials or amendment materials. We're working with leathers. We learned leathers. We are continuing since 137 years. Leather shoes, leather lining, leather footbed. It's made by people. It's a, it's a real handmade product still. So as the business has grown, I mean, you know, online has really changed the game in so many ways for us as a retailer. But speak about it from a wholesaler's point of view. I mean, maybe you have less retail stores you sell to, but maybe you have a heck of a lot more customers because people can find you all over the world through the Internet. So talk about how the online business has really impacted how you do business. 
for us it, online is was not our favorite thing to be honest and it's still not so why is that because we think we are manufacturer and we are best in in going to um, point of sales and service people there and like make you happy with our shoes and successful with our shoes. We are not the we are not the born retailer, so this is why we are not running retail stores or a handful retail. But stores. you can also take it from the point of view that we sell a lot more different customers all around the country because they can access brands like yours I, from us no matter where they live. I understand that, and this is good if if. If you were successful in, in online, I'm happy. No yeah. problem. I mean, you have to have it. It's no doubt. I mean, I, I know this is this is clear. But for us, it's not that we want to um, blow up our um, own online business to uh, 50%. Yes, we you're not trying to do a big are, direct no, to customer business. That's no, not part of your strategy. That, that's not, not part of our strategy. We want to support our, our good partners and uh, online. Yeah, of course, this is, uh, this is the part of the thing. It's interesting, you know, most of the brands I talk to talk about how they're trying to do more and more direct to customer for all kinds of reasons. And, you know, you're one of the few that I've talked to. He says, yeah, look, I mean, it's part of it. But what we really want to do is sell to, to retailers, be a wholesaler. That's interesting. I personally think that shopping in a store, in a nice store, like you have it, is is uh, something which you can't replace with online. But I know that, I mean, generation after me, they are buying online like crazy. We yeah. know that. So that's matter of fact, and we can't change it. And it's okay. And it's good. And as you said, we, we reach a lot more people than we can reach on your street right. somewhere. That's clear. It's not my favorite, just. Yeah. No, I get that. And I think, you know, part of what goes with shoe selling is there's, there's a level of service that I think really goes into a quality experience. You're, you're selling a quality product. It requires some explanation and some storytelling about what that product is so customers, you know, understand what they're paying for. And that happens way better in between two people in a physical store environment than it does necessarily just selling online where it's much more of a transactional situation. See, I, I, we spend, as I told you, we spend a lot of time uh, in, in, in developing leathers and having nice, soft, super nice leathers. How can you show that online? You can't. It's not possible. I mean, you can tell people, okay, this is super nice, high grade, blah, 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 whatever leather. But if you touch that shoe, if you feel that leather, if you have that shoe in your hand, then people will be convinced. Oh, and if wow. you can try them on, you can and tell. And you can try it on. Yeah. And you can take it directly. You yeah. don't have to wait. And I think if we, if we continue to produce a, a really handmade, handcrafted product with a heritage of the company and with a heritage of the family and with a comfort we can really give to a, with a, with a quality and a comfort we can give to a, to a customer, we will have still loyal customers and, and we'll have success. I love it. That's great. You know, you represent something here that I think is really important for us. You know, we started as a shoe business and everything that we've been able to accomplish since that time are from lessons learned sitting on a fitting stool helping a customer. So things like craftsmanship and quality and all the story that goes behind the products and then literally our partnership with brands like that, it was the complete foundation of what grew this business. And so when I hear you talking about how you guys do it and, and how you've had success over the years, it brings me back to all the stuff I learned when I was first in the business from my dad. So that puts a smile on my face. So thank you. I really appreciate you sharing your story with us. Thank you for uh, inviting me here. I'm happy to be here.
Okay, so today uh, we are opening up a time capsule that we kind of buried into the wall there 25 years ago when this store opened. We've been in Seattle forever, but we moved across the street from a different location to this location. I don't know, someone came up with the idea, let's do a time capsule. And I gotta say, I'd kind of forgotten about all that. I was around back then, and I was co-president of the company along with my five cousins, brothers. It's crowded with a lot of fourth generation Nordstroms. Um, my dad and his generation are just retired. And we have a fair amount of employees that were around back in those days. And I think just to see how, think, how far things have come and for them to know that they've been a part of our growth and our success over the years, it makes people feel good. And the fact that a bunch of people showed up today to check this out, we had customers flying from Idaho for this. Like, that's pretty amazing. All right, so Dan, Dan Jones, he's our store manager here. So Dan, what do we got going on here? There's a lot of people milling around. So what's happening here with the unveiling of this time capsule? Today's event is really exciting for a number of our employees. Here at the flagship, we have a number of employees that have been here more than 25 years working downtown Seattle, and they were part of the relocation and the grand opening, and they're so excited to see what the team they were on put into this time capsule. So they're relevant things that meant something to the team in 1998. My name is John Bailey, and in 1998, I was working on the PR team. It was really incredible. It was an incredible time. It was an incredible time to be a part of Nordstrom. We worked on so many things related to the store opening, but one of my favorites was the night that we moved all of the merchandise out of the old store across the street to the new store and just seeing the caravan of rolling racks and boxes and merchandise fixtures, it was pretty incredible. And it was really, you had such a huge sense of being part of something. It was an absolute thrill in 1998 because we have been waiting weeks and weeks and weeks for the grand opening. Come in in the evening, we wore t-shirts and hard hats and we were all ready to roll in sequence and we had the police and everybody there from the media. I remember opening day, there was a question and everybody on the PR team was asking, how many customers do we think we had outside? And one of the TV stations said that they guesstimated about 10,000 customers came out that morning to be with us and it was incredible. It was like, all you could see were human heads, you know what I mean? You, all you saw was a wall of people. There were so many people around. It was just a mass commotion of customers and people, and we were all lined up, and we were so overwhelmed. We were like clapping and cheering, and we were in tears with our customers because we couldn't believe all the excitement was absolutely off the chart. Okay, Nordstrom employees, if you were here 25 years ago when we put this in the wall, raise your hand. Look how many there are. Thank you. Thank you for your years of service and dedication to taking care of our customers every single day. I'm excited for all of you to show up. There are so many people here. <laughs> okay, here it is. It's, um, this is like four to 500 pounds, and we had to reinforce this table just to hold this. So um, before we open it, let's talk about 1998. Let's talk about the Spice Girls, uh, Brandy and Monica, Shania Twain, Madonna, Backstreet Boys, Usher. Okay, the Sonics were in their 30th season, first in the NBA Pacific Division. Fashion, metallic blue eyeshadow. I think I still see that today. Um, I think a big wow was the average price of gas was $1.06. Wow. 
wow. Um, and a big one, at Nordstrom, we launched Nordstrom.com in 1998. And we were able to bring shopping for fashions around the world. So um, let's go ahead, uh, Jimmy, let's pop out some screws here and we will do the grand reveal. Wow, what do we got? We've got a Nordstrom water bottle. We've got memorabilia from the opening. Okay, this is exciting. We are a shoe store. We started in 1901 selling shoes. Um, we're still doing business with Stuart Weitzman. Let's see what we got in here. Oh my gosh. Wow. The Seattle skyline. Stuart Weitzman. Uh, Stuart Weitzman shoe. That's the Seattle skyline with the Space Needle right there. That is pretty awesome. So that was made custom for our store uh, for the grand opening. Super exciting. Um, couple other fun things. I know from, they did a beauty bash all weekend long, so I know the boa is from the beauty bash. So that's super fun. Um, oh my gosh, maybe we could guess the value of this. <laughs> It's the cutest little beanie baby ever. We've got a Mariners baseball. A lot of different memorabilia. We got coffee. These are from the opening. They're, um, oh, they're hooked in here. They're uh, shoe keychains. And then, what was that? We got a box of Wheaties. US Olympic team women's ice hockey. Got a lot of hockey fans here. Um, I don't know if anybody's hungry, but I've got some Pringles right here. <laughs> Leo, do you need a snack? Yes. <laughs> and then we have like the plans. Um, my gosh, downtown Seattle plans. There's just all kinds of stuff in here. So, um, gosh, uh, super exciting, really humbling to see all this and the care that our team put into this. I appreciate you being here today. I appreciate our employees being so excited about this moment. I appreciate all those who've been here since we put this in the wall 25 years ago. Uh, what a feat in itself for doing that. So thank you for attending today. Come up and take a look at it. We will put it on this easel over here and have it on display uh, through next weekend. So thank you very much for coming. And let's have a great afternoon. Okay, so, you know, when we did this deal with the time capsule where we opened up, you know, from 1998, a time capsule that we put in the wall here of our downtown store, one of the things that ran through my mind is all, are all the things that have happened since 1998. And one of them is that was right around the time where we launched Nordstrom.com. So we've got to be great to go back in time to talk about really the formation of Nordstrom.com from someone that was in there and amongst it, and that is Bob Short. So Bob, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Pete, it is a honor and a privilege to be here with you <laughs> hanging out. So, I mean, what people probably should know, Bob, is we go back much farther and more personally than a work relationship with this. And we went to high school and college together. And Bob was actually uh, my brother Blake's best friend. So we've been around each other a long time. And hopefully that will not 
complicate the proceedings here. No, no. And, <laughs> and you know what? If you want to do a podcast on your, you and your brother's ability to do a Nerf basketball sometime, it <laughs> yeah. was an amazing thing to watch. Yeah, that, that might be a podcast for another day, all the hijinks <laughs> of high school and what have you. But yes. so, Bob, so tell me about, you know, when we were launching this, we had a catalog business. And my cousin Dan was kind of running the catalog business, but like, okay, the internet's coming along. And you had somehow had experience and were in this world and in this business. So that's where you entered. So tell us a little bit about the experiences you had, you know, leaving college that gave you that that expertise and experience. Yeah. Uh, yes, we have had a long uh, relationship and your brother and I, uh, decades and decades of being best friend. But what, what happened at that moment, here's what I think happened. Some combination of Dan Nordstrom going to the board and with John Whitaker, CEO at the time and saying, gee, we got to do this Internet thing. And or Mr. Bruce, your dad was sitting around there and that came up and I, I'm just picturing somebody goes, hey, my son's best buddy, uh, Bob, seems to know something about that Internet thing. And I think Dan and John Whitaker put together a package that fit who I was and just said, hey, you know, this Internet thing, we could use your help. We had just I had just helped another company um by becoming co-CEO and we sold it to Amazon. And he goes, you're not doing anything right now. Would you just help us six months at a time, help us launch it, scale it, build it, and then we'll treat you as a founder. And, you know, it'll be a two, three-year journey. And I'm like, that's really interesting. And that started it. But then we came in and the project, what I'll call is Nordstrom.com, had already been started. And the project, I'll call it project manager. I don't know her probably proper title at this time, uh, but Joan DeLay, she's just a terrific human that had already started the project between IT and IBM and started to spool it up. And we certainly had the catalog business for inventory and in women's, because it was a women's targeted catalog. We had a lot of that horsepower behind us, but that's kind of the history of how it first birthed itself. And I, you know, I showed up there and we had some really good assets. So I, I recall back then, you know, we had that catalog business, but when we launched the concept and the idea about Nordstrom.com and trying to make a splash, wasn't it NordstromShoes.com? Isn't that what we called it? And wasn't our whole thing like we're going to be the largest shoe store on the internet? Oh, Pete, there's so much to that. Yes, we launched as Nordstrom.com, but, it, you know, it was like a lot of companies, and I'll, I'll, I'll say it, we were yet another big company online. Macy's, I think, had gone out ahead of us, and they were the cool, hip, uh, trying to be cool and hip and ahead of us. But we were in the process of kind of making a bigger splash out there and deciding, okay, how do we do that? Let's do something different and hit people literally with lightning bolt. We were once the largest shoe store in the in the country, if not in the world, with the downtown store. And we said, yeah, that was a long time ago. That that goes way back. We were the we were the largest independent shoe store in the country. That was that was the narrative I was always told. This was like in the 60s. And, and, and Bezos had launched Amazon.com, the world's biggest bookstore at the right, time. Right. And Dan and I were talking about it and said, let's own world's biggest shoe store. We can do that. We've got the brand. We've got the relationships to do it. 
And, it, you know, two things, and I'd love to share some of it, but it was a major undertaking for us. And we did really innovative things to teach our brands out there how to do dropship. They had never done dropship, which, you know, send a pair of shoes to a customer directly. But it was a huge undertaking. But from a marketing side, and this is the thing I loved about it, it, it was that lightning bolt of NordstromShoes.com, the world's biggest shoe store now online. And our thought was, which happened is they would come for the shoes and then they would go, oh, look, it's everything else that's underneath all this. Because if you knew, you know, there's people across America at that time in 1997 that really had, there's a bunch of them that never had experienced a Nordstrom store yet. Or a lot of them didn't know our heritage and our brand. So it was a way to pull them in and then expose them to it. Do you remember, like, what was day one? Was there a day where the switch got flipped and, okay, we're selling stuff online? Do you remember that? Yeah, I remember the exact day when we lit it up. And it was a big, back then, and I, I'll put on my old, ah, back then, uh, it used to take months and months and months and months a year to build an e-commerce site because they didn't exist. It's not that there was technology. You were starting from bit and byte one. And there was no framework to build on top of. There were no modules to build on top of. Everything was built from ones and zeros, basically. And it cost millions and millions of dollars to launch one of those things. So it was a giant commitment. There was no Shopify. There was no Magento. There was no you know Wix. There weren't those platforms out there for small, medium. And you know at the largest side, IBM and Microsoft raised their hands and said, gee, we've got the capability of helping you. But again, it was pretty raw stuff that you had to build on top of. And so when you went live with these things, and I remember launching with NordstromShoes.com, it was literally, we talked about the Apollo mission. We talked about that kind of a launch. And when and then we had a countdown and, and kind of flipped the button on. And we could track one of our, um, one of the agencies, that we used, his beeper kept going off. I'm like, what is that? And he goes, every time you get a sale, I, my beeper goes off. There was no no texting, et cetera. So his beeper would go off. And I actually used that to create a a module for us to be able to track things. Um, but that was it. We, we went live. And one of the first things you learn is you have to go live with the internet, just like everything, but it's malleable. So as soon as you go live, if you're set to do it, properly, you learn really quickly. And one of the things is on NordstromShoes.com, it said the word men's, women's, kids, et cetera. But it wasn't obvious that they were buttons. And we kept getting complaints that we don't know how to find men's. We don't know how do we get into this. So no one understood and, you know, how a top nav worked or anything like that, the click down, no, all that stuff. These were just words on a page and they didn't <laughs> look like buttons. So I literally went down the hall and talked to, I think it was J. Lou or somebody, one of our graphic design guys and said, put a line around it, make them look like a button. We literally just drew a line about around it and solved it. And the cool thing about the internet that I loved <laughs> and how I got into it from leaving Wall Street was, is this real-time feedback that you can put something out there, learn really quickly and what the customer wants and needs and get feedback and make a change based on that. It's it's just a fun platform versus where I kind of started. I built a company that grew to be pretty big around direct mail, business to business direct mail. And you have to, like the catalog business, you got to put out three or four different versions. You wait a month or two to get results. With the internet, you just literally change something and you can see what the customer likes or doesn't like or what it changes. It's a great, it's a great thing. So we lit it up 
went live and we just put a big button on this thing that said, Hey, talk to us. And you clicked, you know, let us know what you think. When you clicked on it, it literally said, gee, we're not perfect. Let us know what we might've made. So we had to defuse the problem up front. So it it worked really well. that, That launch went really well. Do we actually know what the first thing we sold online was? Was it a shoe or a dress or something? Do, you, do we know this? No, but I can tell you who you've got your first order in the uh, new year clicking over from 1999 to 2000. Who's that? The very first order placed at 12 midnight. Yeah. I walked away from the party, New Year's Eve party, the millennial party we were having. And I had pre-set up on my dial-up computer to place that order. And I still have the order receipt from it. What did you buy, Bob? I, I think it was a pair of gloves. <laughs> and so it, the world, I remember the world didn't end up coming to an end there of Y2K. So that was good. You didn't, it, you didn't crash it, it our didn't. entire company with that order. Thank you. That's good. It did not. It did not. I, I didn't. And uh, it was fun. It just slipped away. You know, I just, I just smiled as I did it. You know, I'll never forget. Uh, we had a uh, offsite of leadership and I was, you know, I, I, at that time I had reported to Whitaker and he asked me to come. I remember I just wanted to go learn, you know, there were a bunch of sessions and he looks at me, he goes, you need to rerun one of these sessions. He goes, cause everybody is so freaked out about what you're doing. You know, you have store one, store four, store, whatever. They're all kind of competitive against each other in a positive way, all for the customer. I was store infinite. I competed against them all. So I went there and I had a session and really the key to that session is I said, Hey, look, here's what we're doing. And I put a line chart up there of our growth and revenue and it went straight up to the right. Here's, here's our growth. Here's what's going on. And everybody you could see just kind of turning white, like he's taking all our, all of our sales. And then I clicked another button and it showed revenue. And we were smaller than a hosiery department at one of your stores (laughs) at the time we were tiny, but what I did learn, you know, I certainly knew it as a shoe dog. I knew it growing up with your growing up with your family But the idea of customer centricity and customer first and doing the right thing by the customer, my message to that group at that time was not only we're not small, but we're going to get bigger. But if we're not there, your competitors will be there. Our competitors will be there. So that made sense to them. And it it, it was fascinating, but we were tiny, tiny, (laughs) tiny, but we grew quickly. Yeah, no, it, it definitely did scale quick. And I remember in those days, and actually, for years after that, the the dot com part of the business would be talked about, like, what is it relative to your other stores? Is it your biggest store, right? And you know, it took years for us to get there at Nordstrom dot com, but it that still comes up once in a while. I mean, we're doing billions of dollars online now. It's like it's so much bigger than any one store we have that that's just not even a relevant comparison but you guys lived through all that where to your point you were just trying to find your place and it wasn't easy internally because I, I think you're right people viewed it as competitive like you mean someone's not going to come walk in the store and buy the shoe for me they're going to buy it online and I'm I've lost my customer and so I remember we had to do a lot of talking about how we're creating an ecosystem and how this works together and frankly 
we didn't really know because there was no blueprint for this. So maybe you can talk a little bit no. about that, because in those days, the idea was that you would maybe grow this thing and spin it off and IPO it, and make a bunch of money and have a completely separate organization. But from day one, for whatever reason, we made the decision that we were going to be more integrated in terms of how we bought it and how we work kind of behind the scenes, right? The back end of it. So can you talk a little bit about that? Well, you know, it's it's, it's really a great statement uh, because what you just said is the reason why we did so well and the reason why uh, we overcame our competitive set out there. And it's that it's the traditional uh, Nordstrom customer at the top. We, you know, the, I'll call it the upside down org chart or pyramid where we all look upward from the bottom and towards the customer. Things like, we were one of the first to allow you to easily return. We put in a return label, which was jaw dropping in the industry, right? What? You know, and don't forget, when you made an order originally, when you placed that order, just the idea that I could go on my computer, click a button, put in a credit card, and place an order and get something that was magical. That something took about two weeks to get to you. Yeah, I was going to ask about it. that. What was your click to deliver in those days? About yeah, two weeks? Yeah, probably about two weeks. And, and we didn't think about doing it faster. We just wanted to make sure we had inventory. That was the big concern. There's a great story I had about uh, we had launched and I'm living in Bellevue and one of my neighbors out there comes up to me and he's a couple clicks older than me. And he comes up and he goes, Hey, Bob, you know, that internet thing you guys are doing on Nordstrom. I finally went online and I bought something and he was like, so excited. And he goes, I bought a pair of shoes and they showed up. He goes, <laughs> that was so great. He goes, the problem was I put them on and they didn't fit. So I go, well, Gordon, what'd you do? Well, I packed them back up and I took them down to the store in Bellevue, Bellevue Square store. I'm like, okay, well, how'd it go? And this is one of the magic things we did, which is God bless the organization and culture allowed us to do these things. We said, if a customer wants to bring it back to the store, they can. Our competitors didn't allow crossing the channels. And what did that mean to us? We didn't know. We just knew we'd have to figure it out but we committed to do that because it was the right thing for the customer. So Gordon brings it back. I go, what happened? He goes, I go up to customer service. I'm standing in a you know, line. I talk to the gal and she goes, no problem, Mr. Rain. I'll give you your you know, money back, et cetera. I go, then what did you do? He goes, well, I went down and got the right size pair of shoes. Uh-huh. I go, and then what do you, and he smiles. Well, since I'm there, I got a bunch of socks, underwear, and then I got three new pairs of pants. I go, okay, thank you. I went back and I would love to say I emailed that to the company, but the company didn't have email, <laughs> just a select few had email, but I made sure that message got out there that look, when we send a return into the store, that's a customer with, with an opportunity yet to be met. And you know what, since they're there, they will continue to to buy more uh, than they original than they're returning anyway. So the idea that we were able to do ret easy returns, return to store, and all those things were were at that time absolutely magical. Yeah, no, it's 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 kind of amazing because again, there was no blueprint for this, but I think the instincts of the company has served us really well because you saw 
the fallout of all that as everyone's rushing in the business, a lot of it didn't work. Right. And they, you know, because they separated and they tried to do this big rush to make a bunch of money and what have you. And it wasn't a durable solution. And so we lived through that in the early 2000s. But we were able to kind of keep chugging along because we had the right, you know, scaffolding, I guess, the right infrastructure, the right viewpoint of we're we're really just trying to serve the customer in the most seamless way possible. And I guess we kind of lucked into it, but maybe we should give you more, you guys more credit for that, that we're hanging out over there, you know, with your small and mighty team kind of, you know, kind of pioneering this whole thing. I, you look, it was all made up and we were all pioneering, figuring this stuff out. We didn't know. We tried things like heavy content, more magazine looks to see if that would, if that worked. And, you know, it was all, everything was experimental at that time. I remember the biggest noise about buying online that's out there is people. Can you trust them? Right. I'm giving you my credit card. And, and actually there wasn't a lot of credit card security, you know, infrastructure out there. So it was a little tenuous to start. But the idea that people, you know, at the core of Nordstrom and the brand, I think is the word trust. And the idea that they just could trust Nordstrom, not only if something went wrong through transaction, but trust that if I get this thing, I'm getting a thing I've never tried on it. And in particular, a shoe, I, I just I innately trust Nordstrom to do the right thing and uh, and make it good if it doesn't work. So I'm good with that. So that it was it was, you know, we didn't do it all by ourselves. And that was the hack that I had that I thought, look, I've got something that already has a cheat code, which is the brand and et cetera. I got a bunch of touch points at the uh, point of sale in, in, you know, what became a hundred stores out there and et cetera. We should be able to make this great. And, and I'll go a step further. Uh, I'll tell you how much it, it was new to Nordstrom. As you know, when I came in, we didn't have a lot of technology, even in the core business, uh, because technology was new and we wanted to be on the floor with the customer. But when I got there, this was so new that my moniker, what everybody called me, you know, throughout the whole company, when they'd see me was E-Bob. That's right. right? I remember that. I became E-Bob. So that's, that it, it gives you perspective of how new it was. It was a blast, Peter. Pete, I just love doing it and I'm really proud of it. I, I do, um, I go to the mailbox, you know, once a quarter looking for a uh, commission check uh, <laughs> or royalty check. And I, I, I assume it's just all being put away somewhere. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. <laughs> well, look at Bob, I, mean, I, I want to make sure you know that I, you know, I don't remember all the details, but I remember yeah. the spirit of what was happening there and, and how it got launched and the role you and others played you know, with a real sense of passion and kind of motivation to do something here. And it, that, yeah. that served us really well. So I, anyway, I just want to thank you for that. And I, again, I hope it makes you feel good that it's grown in such an important part of our business. It's fun, Look, it's fun to catch up with you and hear from you directly about this. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. My pleasure, Pete. Thank you. And really proud of what I did out there. It was one of my most enjoyable arcs of my career. So that's great. There you go. All right, Bob. Good to see you. Go Huskies. <laughs> that's right. Go dogs. Okay, so this morning, I'm happy to have Miguel Almeida here, who runs our digital businesses at Nordstrom. 
And uh, what we're going to talk about here is to give some perspective and context, first of all, about how big and important our online business is, but also in contrast to when we started this in 1998, which Miguel was not around for, but he can certainly talk about what's what's going on now and, and just the dynamic nature of what that business is and how important it is to our business. So Miguel, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you, Pete, for having me today. So maybe the best place to start is for us to learn a little bit more about you. So you've been at Nordstrom for how long now? Almost four years. Four years. I joined day one of the pandemic. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, so talk about that. So that's your first day. My first day, March 9th, 2020. I come to a empty office because that I think was the first day where employees were all asked to stay home. Did, did they not send that memo to you that they you should not, stay home for they, your health concerns? They did not concerns? send that. I knew two days in. in advance that I would not have anyone here, but uh, I come into an empty office. I actually have lunch with you and Eric that day, and I leave with a laptop ready to run the digital business for Nordstrom. <laughs> what so could was, possibly well, go well, wrong? Huh? Welcome to Nordstrom, Miguel. Um, and 30 days after, the stores closed. Yeah. So talk a little bit about your background, what brought you to Nordstrom. Yeah. So on a personal side, I was born and raised in Lisbon, Portugal. I've been in the U.S. for, for about 20 years now. And, um, and you came here for what reason? Um, I came here for business school for two years then decided to stay. So I started off right after business school in a what I call my technology career chapter and uh, where I worked, got the, the chance to work for Dell, building and growing their online business, then Apple in, 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 in California. And then after that transition into over a decade long career now, what I would say in driving digital transformations and helping retailers and brands that did not start in the digital age become more digitally savvy and, and accelerate their, their digital transformation. So talk a little bit more about that, because um, I know you've worked with a couple of really successful companies before you came yeah, here. Yeah, so I was with uh, with Starbucks and Lululemon right right when, when, before before joining Nordstrom. Walgreens was the one before, before Lululemon, and um, all of them were in different stages of their digital savviness, but it was all about contributing to very strong brands with a some of them with a cult following and helping them stay true to what they were all about and now helping them connect with customers through a digital lens. So tell me a little bit about what your journey's been like. You came here with ideas of what Nordstrom was. You're aware of us, obviously, customer, what have you. And then you've been here. Talk a little bit about, first of all, you came, like, what did you find? Did it seem like, oh, my God, there's a lot of work here to do? Or, man, this is really, these guys got it all figured out. And then and then bring us to where you think we are today. Yeah. Um, maybe I'll, I'll start a little bit by, by, I think, the excitement of the future that I thought we could build here, that we're still building, and then go walk backwards in terms of what I found when I joined and then, and then where we've taken it. And I remember, actually, sitting here in this office with you talking about where, during the interview process, where could we take Nordstrom online and digital going forward? And I think to me, the observation was that Nordstrom had been pioneers in the e-commerce space, incredible omni-channel capabilities, which means the ability for customers to buy online and pick up in store, do store returns. So we were deeply connected the channels. Yeah, a real seamless approach. Very seamless, which was outstanding. But what I saw from the outside, and I can certainly confirm that after being here for four years, was that we we had built a large-scale 
transactional platform online. That means we have a great catalog. Our websites are a great catalog. You can find merchandise, product. They're very efficient. But they were lacking the energy, emotion, and richness that our people in our stores can provide our customers. And particularly for the business we're in, right? I mean, right. people aren't coming here looking for widgets. It's you emotion, know. right? They're, they're it's, buying fashion. Uh, they're, buy, they're buying fashion. <laughs> yeah. uh, there's an emotional connection in aspect of fashion that, I, that makes me very excited. The brands that we carry have unbelievable stories to tell. They've built legacies on the, on the stories of their products. It's not only the garment, right? It's the story that comes around the garment. Who built it? Why they designed it? And when, we, when I looked at our digital touch points, they, they, did not, they were not able to convey that emotion. They were not able to convey the storytelling of brands. So I, yeah, like we call the discovery part of it. The right? discovery part. So I think, I think the, the vision was and still is to turn our digital platforms into a place for customers to get inspired, to get educated about the brands and products that we that we carry. And, and it's about bringing a deep element of personalization into that experience. And I think the, the analogy that we use internally is uh, we're, we're building the Spotify of fashion. If you substitute band for brands, that's where we can go, where you light up the app and you see the beautiful stories of brands that, that, that we believe you may be interested in. You, right. can, you can get recommendations for, by occasion, brands like this, um, you will like brands like that. And, and then go deep into the brand and provide a platform for them also to tell their beautiful stories to our customer base. So that that's where, where we're taking things. Yeah. You know, I always find it interesting that people that maybe don't know a lot about how this part of the business works assumes that it's something completely different, that we're doing something completely foreign to whatever it is that we've learned a hundred plus years being retailers. And to me, it's all the same idea just through a different yeah. medium, right? Through a different channel, yeah. I guess you'd say it's, you know, we're trying to engage people and compel them to buy things both on things they might expect to buy, yeah. right? That's the relevance of what we have to offer. Then the inspiration of, you know, I go through a store, I see something I didn't even know I was looking for, or a salesperson said, hey, you should try this on, you know, how to do a version of that yeah. online. It's yeah. the same yeah. outcome we're trying to Absolutely, chase. Absolutely the same. And today, customers expect that. the Their mobile phone is is a very intimate device. They carry it in their pocket, in their purses. Uh, many people sleep with their phone next to them. And Yeah, I do that. And we want to... Do you do that? Do you do that? <laughs> no, it's bad, for, it's, it's bad for sleep, apparently. It, so I, I put my, it all outside no of my No one calls room. me, so I, nothing happens to my it's phone. Not, it's not good for sleep. Um <laughs> But that's a whole different story. But I, but I think it, that's what customers expect. And, and, and we being a brand that is so trusted, I want to have our app icon on their phone um, home screen. And it's also not only bringing this integration of, of, of what we do in stores to online. It's also about leveraging the phone eventually to enrich their in-store experience, to to help them connect with our people. Yeah, it's, it's amazing about amplifying how- human connections and experiences as well, because that device can potentially turn your store experience into a much richer environment than 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 a non-digital augmented experience. In yeah, store. talk about how it all works together because we have good insights into the way customers behave, and it's not like I'm an online customer. 
or I'm a store customer and there's like some kind of wall in between them. No. It's completely integrated. So can you talk a little bit about how it works yeah, for our customers? Our very best customers, um, and to an extent, most customers, I think we, we serve about right now 14 million customers digitally a year. And, and the pattern that we see is- the, the, By the way, we should that, that's not trivial. That's that's a lot. So it's 14 million customers. We're doing roughly 40% of our total business done that, online about, now. About that. that yeah. That's correct. And I think it will continue growing. But but more than doing the business online, customers are many times, even before going to a store, they're learning about brands and things that they may want or like. So digital for us, it's more of an enga- a customer engagement platform than a sales platform. All right. So I got a question for you. So what is the most common complaint that you get from customers about their online experience? It alternates between their, sometimes they're, they're not able to find the product or the product is arriving late. So a lot of it has to do with logistics of shipping the Logistics, product. yeah. When they have a very specific product in mind, sometimes they have, they have a hard time finding it. And those things we actually solved the last few years, we became a lot better. So that's all through the search work that you through guys are doing? Through search work. And now, as of recently, we've, we, we, we have now one of the leading search experiences embedded on our website. So that, that pain point we have... Um, we have fixed, but they want choice and they want to find the choice that they want. So if we carry the product, they need to find it. And we also need to expand the selection. And then they want it. And then they want it again. Once, and, once yeah. they buy it, they're, and, and, and they want it on time. And, yeah. uh, and we, our on-time on, on, on shipping is actually quite good, but it's that those, those two or 3% that don't get it on time, that's where you hear the most yeah, that I, they're not happy. That's always interesting thing. So you talk about we have 14 million customers that interact with us online. And if we're doing a, a job like say 97, 98% of the time we're doing it well, that still means there's two or three percent of the time it's not going well. And when you're talking about that on 14 million people, it's yeah, you my mass out there, it's hundreds of thousands yeah. of people are having a bad experience. Yeah. And, and again, it's very important <laughs> for them that those, those, we made them a promise. And yeah. uh, when it gets off that promise, you, you will hear from them. But it's, but it's a very small percentage. And the last few years, that percentage keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller. We we're, we're shipping faster, we're serving customers better. And, and by the way, we do have our team back bringing back science to the things that we do. We have these, what we call these pain points mapped out with specific frameworks that tell us how many customers is it affecting, what's the level of severity. Uh, and this is something that our teams keep chipping away every single day to make that experience better. And it's, it's an ongoing improvement process, and we won't stop until we're in the 99.99999% of serving customers the way that we should. So we know that the expectations are high, and a lot of that's you know, because our neighbors here in Seattle, Amazon doesn't really get on the transactional part of it. So that bar is set high that we got to do yeah. do well there. So you talk about the complaints. So what's the number one compliment that we get from our online customers? It's when there's an online to store connection where we get customers complimenting us. So I, talk about that. I bought this online and it was, it was not the exact fit that I wanted. I went into the store and the store employee was so nice in helping me and then give me the right size immediately on time for my event. So it's always our people going above and beyond what's expected. And that's when we usually get the compliments. And so that's why we talk about a lot, like really the best mousetrap in retailing is that you've got the power 
of the physical assets, the legacy approach, you know, for us, the service and what have you, the people, stores, combined That's with it. the speed and convenience of technology, what online does and how it works together. That's exactly it. That's It's that combination. And we, if you think about where we're taking digital, as I was saying before, it's about inspiration and education, discovery, emotion, and it's about amplifying human connection and experience. It's about continuing to bring customers to our store events. It's about helping them connect with their favorite salesperson or stylist in store. That's why I believe I think the future of online is so exciting. It's about amplification of human experiences. Humans have been gifted by technology to have their lives a lot more simpler. And there's a lot of utility that was brought, but they still crave human connection. It's interesting now you're getting into the world of AI that will bring a whole different wave of, of convenience to customers. But we're humans and, and, and that human connection is never going to go away. And brands like us that have that as a key pillar of our brand value proposition, I think we are the brands that, we, that, that will win if we can do that integration seamlessly going forward. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Hey, Miguel, that's great. I, I really appreciate getting a chance to spend some time with you. And I just want to let you know that I appreciate what you and your team do. It's, it's a busy time. There's a lot on the line for us here. And so many customers are going to really form their opinion about Nordstrom based on what happens really through the stuff that you guys are working on directly. So thanks to you and, and all the best. I hope it's the best holiday season ever. Thank you. Thank you for bringing me along in, in, into this journey. Well, that's the show. We're really glad you're with us on this journey, and we hope you keep listening. The easiest way to do that is to subscribe to the Nordy Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please take a minute to give us a like, a share, and a review so other people can find this thing too. For more information about the show, head to Nordstrom.com slash Nordy Podcast, or follow us on our Instagram page at the Nordy Pod to stay up to date on new episodes, announcements, and more. We'd also really like to hear about your experience with Nordstrom, so if you have a story about how you received great service or even bad service, send us an email to nordypodcast at nordstrom.com. You can even give us a call and leave a voicemail, and you may just get a chance to talk to me personally on a future episode of the show. That number is 206-594-0526. So don't be shy, drop us a line and be part of the Nordypod. And make sure to tune in next time. In the spirit of the giving season, we're shedding a little light on a couple of our philanthropic partners, Operation Warm and Shoes That Fit. Shoes That Fit is um, really a simple concept. We provide brand new athletic shoes to kids in low-income communities at their schools across the country. We're in all 50 states now, thanks to our relationship with Nordstrom that really helped launch us. But we really believe these kids are our future and we wanna give them something that is just really necessary for them. Operation Warm, it's all about the new coat, right? And these kids having the opportunity to pick a coat that they choose, it's new, it's the color they like. Did you get the color you wanted? You excited about it? I love it. I very much love it. I this love- is the best. This is the best day ever. Woo! Yeah, better than Christmas. Wait. This is better than Christmas. Wow. Both of these amazing organizations help us to make a real impact in places where we operate across the United States. And I'm super excited to share their stories with you next time on The Nordy Pod. Mm-hmm.